Welcome back to another episode of the Transform Your Life podcast. I'm Angela Haug, founder of the international online coaching business, Team Ange. I'm an expert in building muscle and losing fat, a natural figure and fitness pro athlete with the UFE, and a lover of everything personal development. I'm a mom, a businesswoman, Most days, I just feel like a hot mess trying to keep it all together. I spent the first two decades of my life overweight, tired, hating vegetables, and living off Pepsi. I got sick and tired of feeling tired every day and decided to transform my life. This fitness and nutrition podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering listeners on all things training, nutrition, and personal development. I'm on a mission to help you improve your body, achieve your goals, live a confident and fulfilled life stepping into your full potential. So let's help you transform physically and mentally to a person that's been hiding underneath all along. Let's do it. What's up, guys? Welcome to this week's episode. For today's conversation, I had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Jillian Mandich, and we had the coolest chat all about happiness and health. Jillian has a PhD from Western University in health science and she's really dove deep with her research into how to be happier and healthier. She's the founder of the International Happiness Institute of Health Science Research. She's a top-rated keynote and TEDx speaker, appears regularly as the resident happiness expert on the social and breakfast television, and writes for numerous print and online media. In today's chat, we talked all about how Jillian got into happiness, why is happiness important, how we can live the best life ever, what we can learn from the world's happiest countries, and how to just really create a life that is full of joy. I hope you guys enjoy. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode, my conversation with Dr. Jillian Mandich. Maybe we should just start with you telling our audience a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you're talking about with uh, with the studies that you did. Yeah, so I, I research happiness. And so all of my research is really focused on like how can we learn to be happier? Because when you look to the literature, I was actually, when I first started studying happiness, surprised to learn that a lot of our happiness is actually a skill-based learned behavior. So yes, there's a genetic element, and yes, there is an element of our environment and our day-to-day activities, and almost half of our total capacity for happiness is, is something that we can learn and practice. And almost like you go to the gym and you exercise muscles to get stronger, you can do practices to learn to get happier. And so my research really focuses on what are those things and how can we implement them in a sustainable way to actually make our lives happier. Very interesting. What drew mm-hmm. you to that field? You know, it's so interesting, Angela. I, um, I, I did my master's degree in child and youth health. So okay. I was really, so actually, if I back up even more, my undergrad degree was in health science. I went to Western in London, Ontario, and I was, I wanted to go to med school. Because at the time, if you were, I loved math and I loved science, so I thought, you know, being a doctor would be a great option. And then I realized that I wasn't so sure about that. And then I started learning that you could do research. So instead of going to med school, I decided to do a master's degree. And then from there, I went on to do a PhD in health science as well, specializing in health promotion. Because what I realized, like what I'm most passionate about is figuring out how do we live the best life ever? How do we take whatever's going on in our life right now, and regardless of you know our jobs or our situations or whatever is going on, we all have the capacity to, to turn our light up, turn our volume up a little bit more. So 
what I decided was I wanted to really learn about that. And that's actually how I came to study happiness was looking at the research and figuring out what really matters in terms of our health. Because um, as I was saying earlier, my master's degree in child and youth health, I was doing a lot of childhood obesity research. So a lot of parent and family focused interventions to address childhood obesity. And what I realized was that when I was doing that in my research, when a child would come in, I would use their height and their weight and calculate their body mass index or BMI. And then I would determine if they could be in my study or not. And I realized, like, why am I using weight as a cutoff to see if I can help somebody be healthier? Because as you know, and I'm sure if you're listening right now, you know that the number on a scale doesn't necessarily indicate health. It may, and it may not. So you can be overweight or obese and be healthy, and you can be not overweight or obese and be unhealthy. So I went digging into the research to see, like, okay, well, what else, if I don't want to use weight, what else can I look at in terms of things that really matter in terms of our health, in terms of living the best life ever. And I sort of stumbled onto happiness research. I didn't even know it was a thing. You know, it's not like when I was growing up and talked to my guidance counselor, I said, you know, when I grow up, I want to study happiness. But I was shocked to learn that A, researching happiness was a thing. And B, that happiness and health are highly correlated. So when we're happier, we tend to be healthier. We tend to make better health choices. And even on a physiological level, you can see changes in our body when we're happy. And not only that, but it also acts like a buffer to, to help mitigate some of the, the detrimental effects of some of the more challenging or difficult emotions. So stress, anxiety, fear, depression. Happiness can really mitigate some of those effects. And so I thought that's pretty cool. And uh, that's what sort of launched me into, into researching happiness. And I haven't looked back. Very cool. Very cool. Now, you also just mentioned there that you're trying to find the things that people do regularly to be happier. So in your studies, Mm -hmm. what has surprised you the most that has come up Mm -hmm. consistently uh, in terms of happiness? Because I feel like with happiness, like happiness to me and happiness to you, probably maybe different things, right? Like they're probably not universal if we were to list the things that bring happiness into our life. So was there surprising things that you've come across in your research? Oh, I I love that you're asking this question because it, it, first of all, like the, the idea of happiness being different for all of us is so true because you or me or you listening right now, I'm sure we all have a different definition of what happiness is. And yet we didn't have to start this podcast by describing what happiness is. We all have like a general understanding of it. And so while that's pretty cool, it makes it very difficult when you're a researcher. Because when you're a researcher, the beginning of your study, you have to define all your terms. So defining happiness becomes a difficult thing when, A, it's an emotion. And it can be very difficult to put emotions into words. You know, like, how do you, how do you describe love, right? Or same as happiness. So uh, a definition I often use is one that comes from uh, Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, and she's out in California, and she defines happiness as the experience of joy, contentment, and positive well-being combined with a sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. So essentially, you kind of have like how you're feeling in the moment and how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis, and that that cumulative effect kind of gives you an idea of happiness. But I mean, definition aside... I don't really, like, even when I was preparing for my PhD defense, you know, I was worried, are they going to really get in the weeds about defining happiness? But I don't really think that's kind of the the key piece to focus on because we all know what it feels like. And whether we can put it into words or not, I don't think is like the, the big factor. What really matters is, okay, well, what do we do? What can we do 
in order to increase whatever happiness feels like for us. Because like you said earlier too, like happiness can be expressed in different ways, right? You watch somebody do a touchdown dance at the Super Bowl and they are happy. And you watch someone coming out of a yoga class and they're all blissed out and happy, both the same emotion, separate expressions of it. So as a researcher, when I started sort of digging into actually a study that I just finished for my PhD, I looked at happiness in university students. And Every week for four weeks, they learned skills that were highly correlated with grad- with happiness. So they learned about things like gratitude, mindfulness, the importance of social collect- connections and fostering relationships. And probably the most shocking thing to me was that at the end of it, I asked the students, I said, you know, like, what did you learn? Like, what, what was your big takeaways? And most of them, they said, you know, I kind of already knew all this stuff, but I just never heard it before. And I, I really started to think about that. And, and you know what? It makes sense because think about it. Like even growing up, we go to school and we learn math and we learn science and history and geography, but nobody actually teaches us to be happy. And so when we become older and we start wondering, well, why am I not as happy as I want to be or as I could be? Part of it is not our fault because nobody ever taught us how to do that. And well, a lot of it is kind of intuitive it can be interesting to actually hear somebody talk about the science behind it to sort of add evidence to what we already kind of know intuitively within us. And so also one of the things that I found was really interesting in my study out of all the skills that the students learned by far, their favorite that came up over and over and over and over again was learning how to practice gratitude. So um, the students in my study had to do an activity called three great things. So every single day they had to write down three great things that happened to them. That's it. You know, and it takes what, like a minute, two minutes to do that. And out of everything they learned in the entire study over and over and over again, consistently, not only did they enjoy the activity, but they saw benefits to the activity and they wanted to continue the activity even after the study was done. How cool is that? So cool. What were the other skills? Just out of curiosity, mm. you said gratitude, but yes. Yeah. So they learned about social connection because there was um, a really big longitudinal study out of Harvard that found that the number one predictor of both our long-term health and our happiness is social connection. So uh, having you know one or two people in your life that when things are going wrong or you need to vent or cry or confide in, you have one or two people in your life that you can really go to and then vice versa. So that can come to you. Having those relationships is more important in terms of both our health, our happiness and our longevity than things like our income, where we live, where we work, our kids, all of that. So learning to A, understand the the importance of having good social relationships and prioritizing relationships. And then also learning how to have effective relationships and to know that they're so important, especially in today's day and age where we go on social media so much and we feel that connection, but it's not the same. It's sort of more of a superficial level of connection oftentimes. Uh, Learning about how to prioritize relationships, make time for, especially um, I was working with the student population, but all of us can relate to the being busy and having not enough hours in the day to do everything that we want. And so realizing that, wow, really taking the time to make an effort to connect with my friends and my family or my loved ones is is such an important piece. So that was a big one. Also learning about mindfulness. So really paying attention to what's going on in the, in the present moment and being mindful as we go throughout our day instead of sort of robotically just going from A to B to C to D, getting up, going to work, going to bed, whatever it is. 
but really taking time to use all of our senses to experience the day, to be present, to notice the beautiful sunset or to to smell the fall air that we're having right now or whatever it is. Um, those are some of the really big ones that they learned that, again, it's not earth shattering, groundbreaking things. And yet those small things are the big things and the cumulative effect of all of those things really does matter in terms of our happiness and our health. What about hobbies? Is that, mm. so, is that something that came up like in terms of being playful or exploring a new skill or doing some of the things that maybe brought us joy from our childhood? Did any of that come up in the research? Yes, actually, I just I just did a so- segment on the social a month or so ago about hobbies because they are so important for our happiness because for a couple reasons, and, you know, especially if you, I think there's a lot of wisdom that we can find in children when you watch them, when they haven't had the weight of the world on them, they haven't had all of these experiences, and they haven't done that. You look at what they do and they play and they experiment and they get creative. And then as adults, we tend to lose that. So hobbies can be a great way to really connect back with that. The other really good thing about hobbies is that oftentimes uh, they get you off your phone, they get you off social media, they get you off screens doing something that you enjoy. And so you get kind of that boost from unplugging and from, uh, I guess if your hobbies video games or something, but for a lot of different hobbies, that isn't the case. And then also I think it almost connects you back to your childlike nature. And it also, it gives you a purpose and meaning. And that's a really important element as well. Having a sense of of what you're doing and that you're not just kind of like going through the day and going through the emotions like a robot. So when you find a hobby, when you find things that you love to do, it lights you up, it invigorates you, it inspires you. And those things, whether it's, you know, taking some time to scrapbook or to do those things that you love, it really, they do have a profound impact on our happiness as well. And I think especially as adults, getting to know and making sure that we make time for hobbies, you know, our schedule is so busy and full and it can be really easy to let that one drop off. And I think it's really important to remember that, well, it might seem frivolous or a waste of time to sit down and to scrapbook for an hour or to, to knit or to play rowing or whatever you want to do. It, it really does have a positive impact on our happiness for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I just find it so interesting as adults, we often lose that. I look at children and we're mm-hmm. running them to activities or always giving them like ways in which they can express themselves like putting mm-hmm. together crafts for them or taking mm-hmm. them to music lessons and then all of a sudden we hit this age and those things are no longer priorities I, I just find it so fascinating that we just yeah we become adults and we completely forget about what brought us so much joy for so many years Oh, yeah. And it's so true because, I mean, the other thing about it, too, is that if you look at, like, creativity, when your best ideas come to you, it's when you you go out for a hike or you take time and you get create some space around you. You do something fun. It gives your brain time to relax. It gives your body an opportunity to let go of the stress that you're feeling in your life, especially if you're doing um, a hobby that really makes you present. One of the other great things about that is that it can reduce anxiety and stress because it forces you to be in the moment so your mind isn't wandering to the past or moving forward to the future. So even in addition to happiness, if you look at things like anxiety and stress, it can have a positive impact on that. And when you have less anxiety and stress, then you tend to be happier as well. So you kind of get it from both sides. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we've been talking talking a lot about happiness, but would you agree that happiness 24-7 is not the end goal and that 
your emotional spectrum needs to expand beyond I'm okay all of the time, I'm happy all of the time? Yes, 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 yes. So if you're listening right now, I really, I want you to know that that I'm essentially a doctor of happiness. I have a PhD, a research happiness, and I've seen the research, I've seen the data, and I would never tell anybody that the goal is to be happy all the time. I am not happy all the time, nor is that a goal or something that I aspire to. Because actually, you know, when I, when I first started researching happiness, I really thought that was the case. I thought, you know, I'm going to start studying happiness and I'm going to figure out how I can be happy all the time. And when I got into the research, I realized that you know, we're humans and we have a spectrum of emotions and that's part of the human experience. And if you don't have those challenging, difficult, stressful times, while we don't want to have them all of the time, if you can think back to a time in your life when you really went through something difficult, it is difficult. And yet at the same time, it gives you the opportunity to show yourself how strong you are, how capable you are, how resilient you are. And not only that, it also helps you to appreciate the good times more. And there's actually research, um, it's actually called the dark side of happiness. So um, this research talks about how people who single narrow-mindedly focus on happiness, who prioritize that above everything else all of the time, they actually end up being less happy than other people. Interesting. Yeah, because if you're so focused on it all of the time, then you don't get to enjoy the rest of your life. And I mean, part of Part of the human experience is understanding that we have a palette of emotions. And so really what the goal is, in my, is based on my opinion and what I've read in the research, is that when you start to grow your happiness muscle, when you start to do things that make you happier, you get almost like stronger in terms of happiness. So your lows, they get higher, and then your highs get higher. So you kind of have this uptrend of your emotion. And it's, you know, if you're feeling any emotion, whatever it is, whether it be happiness, sadness, frustration, anger, whatever it is, I really think in terms of healthy um, psychological functioning, it's really feeling that emotion, not bottling it up, not pushing it away, experiencing it fully, and then moving on. It's when you start to marinate in those emotions that things can get a little bit tricky and dicey, and that's what we don't want to do. So knowing that, you know, for example, for me, if I'm feeling really like frustrated or I've been spending a lot of time at my computer for the day and I know that I'm just getting like tired and exhausted and grumpy, I'll go for a walk because for me, I know that when I go outside and go for a walk, especially if I can go for a walk in nature, it shifts my mood. And we all have things like that. We all have things that we can do that can help to shift our mood. And so the question then is asking yourself, what are those things for you? And then when you get into situations where you're not feeling that, you have these tools in your tool belt to to help you shift your mood. And it's not about eliminating that mood. It's about feeling it and then and then choosing again. You know, and one of the things I think that's really interesting, a lot of times when I do research and I ask somebody, what makes you happy? I'll get blank stares mm-hmm. and they'll say things like, I never really thought of that or I don't know, because it's interesting because we all want to be happy and yet we don't often, often take the time to really think about what are those things that make me happy? So I think that's a really important question to sit with as well, because if you're not as happy as you'd like to be and you don't know what makes you happy, then how are you ever going to get there? right? How are you ever going to start to shift the needle in that direction more and more? So a lot of it really comes back to this piece of self-awareness, getting to know ourselves. because even as a happiness researcher, I can't tell people what to do to be happy. It's up to every single one of us. You know, yes, I can share with you research and I can tell you that some of these things, they have a, a more of an impact on our happiness or say that a lot of people find that say gratitude, for example, impacts your happiness. But at the end of the day, we're all unique people. 
and we're all different. And, and really the piece of personal responsibility of acknowledging that nobody's going to make us happy. We have to make ourselves happy. The caveat to that is that there's a time and a place for medical intervention. I get asked this a lot, you know, people that maybe say want to be on antidepressants or something like that. And the truth is, if we don't have the building blocks, like if your body isn't producing serotonin or dopamine or one of those precursors, no amount of gratitude and affirmations is going to make you happy, right? Sometimes we need the wonders of medical science and modern medicine to help us sort of get those building blocks in place. And once we have those in place, the rest of it is up to us. It's up to us to really work and to commit to being happy because nobody, especially if you look at people that look to other people to find their happiness, they often aren't as happy as other people. When you look at the the very happy people in the world, there's actually research um, studies that are done that look at the world's happiest people and what do they have in common. And one of those things is really these people recognize that they create their own happiness. And no matter where they are in the world, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, no matter what tragedies or amazing things have happened, all of those things don't matter nearly as much as having this mindset of taking responsibility for happiness, choosing to see happiness in every situation, and really working on and cultivating that for yourself and not looking externally to find that. Because, I mean, how many of us have ever thought, you know, I will be happy when fill in the blank, right? Like when I get that car, when I get this money, when I get this promotion. And then what happens when that happens? We're not as happy as we think we are because we're chasing something that isn't actually a tangible material thing. And so when we recognize that it goes a lot deeper than that, that's when you can start to see the really profound shifts. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Now, what about countries? Are there particular countries that tend to be happier are we there's something about north american culture that influences our particular happiness what does the research say jillian yeah so actually interestingly um the world health organization every year they rank all the countries in the world in terms of their happiness and so generally i mean it changes a little bit year to year but the scandinavian countries take the top all the time so Finland, Iceland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, those countries are always hovering around the top. Canada, we're usually like 8 to 10, 11, 12. The States is usually a little bit below us. And so one of the reasons for that is that if you look at Scandinavian countries, they have amazing social support and social connection. They've got good social services. They um, they have really um, pretty decent economic situations. So all of those things culminate and make them the, one of the like the happiest countries. But what I one of your um, I don't know how long ago it was a while ago when there was a big recession. One of the really interesting things I, I read about was that Iceland they they as a country essentially went bankrupt. They lost all their money. And so um, people were thinking their happiness score is going to drop. And what they ended up finding was at the end of this, their happiness score actually increased. Then researchers were really perplexed by this because they're like, wait a second, they basically have gone bankrupt and they're happier? How does that work? And what the researchers found when they really went and dug into it is that their social support and social connection was so strong. And as we know, social connection has way more of an impact on our happiness than money does. And so even though they had lost so much money, they actually found a way to be happier because they were there for each other and they supported each other and they bonded over this experience. Isn't that interesting? That is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's really important to note because oftentimes we think that money is going to bring us happiness. Mm-hmm. And what the research shows is that once our basic needs are met, so once we know that we have enough money to pay our groceries and we know how we're going to pay our mortgage or our rent, once those sort of basic needs are are taken care of, 
more money doesn't bring more happiness. So if you don't have your basic needs, yes, not having that money does make you less happy. And once you're at that sort of basic threshold, buying more or having more money doesn't make you more happy. Hmm. Why do you think so many people use money to chase happiness then? You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of it has to do with marketing and and media and what's perpetuated in our culture. Because especially you, you scroll through Instagram, you look on Facebook, you watch commercials on TV and what's marketed to us, right? It's like beautiful women, beautiful cars, beautiful men, beautiful trips. And we're told that these buying these things are going to be happy because look at these people in these ads or whatever they're doing, they're so happy. And yet, I mean, especially when you look to like say Instagram culture, for example, right? We can start to see how polished those photos are, how posed those photos are, how filtered those photos are. And we know that that's not real life. And yet we sit there and whether it's conscious or subconscious, we start to compare and we start to feel like, well, if I'm not happy and this person in this photo looks happy, then if I look like this person in this photo or I'm doing what those people are doing in the photo, I'm going to be happy too. And and a lot of it, you know, it's it's not our fault. It's, it's the way that our culture is marketed. And that's why it's really important to, to not be such a passive consumer of what's going on and to really be mindful and intentional about what we're doing and to really see things for what they are. You know, I taught a, a course at Western University called Health and Social Media. So it was a fourth-year health science class, and we really started to unpack the effects of social media on on our health and on our happiness and social comparison is such a difficult thing it really has a detrimental effect on our mental health and i mean the fact of the matter is when you look at social media and you're scrolling scrolling through you're seeing people's bright shiny moments you're seeing what they choose to share with the world you're seeing their great big accomplishments or events you're not seeing the mornings that they're exhausted you're not seeing the late nights you're not seeing when they're feeling under the weather when they're getting in a fight with their husband or their kids when they're feeling self-conscious and insecure so when we start to compare someone's front story with our backstory it kind of makes sense why we start to feel that way and so that's where I think especially social media, we weren't born with a roadmap of that. We have to learn how to navigate that and how to create some boundaries and how to really mind our mental health when we do that. Because when we do that, we can use social media as a tool instead of something that really starts to detract and deter from the good things in our life. Hmm. How do you think Mm -hmm. we teach that to our kids? I feel like because, yes, we are navigating social media and we are obviously feeling the pressure as adults, but now we have these little people who are growing up in the world where we kind of have a responsibility to teach them how to use social media in a way that isn't going to um, influence their self-worth or um, influence their overall happiness. So what kind of tools or tips do you have for parents that are raising children uh, in this current age? Yes. I love that you're asking this question because it's so important. Like, you know, I said earlier, my master's degree is in child and youth health. And it's something that I think is really important to me is really paying attention to our next generation because they're what's moving forward and they're what's going to make change in this world. Um, And wanting to set them up for success in the best way possible is critical. And so social media, actually, so when I teach this course, I was telling you about on social media, one of the slides I put up is a picture of Spider-Man. And it has this quote from the movie Spider-Man that I think is originally from Voltaire. And it says, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that that is so relevant when we think about social media because it can be an amazing tool. 
Like even when I was in school, I would have to go to the library to do research out of an encyclopedia. I'm dating myself now, um, right? And now you can open up Google on your phone and learn anything that you want. You can learn languages. You can talk to people across the world. You can look up anything. You can convert money or languages or whatever it is. And so it can be a great tool. It can really enhance learning. It can enhance connection. You know, even in the classroom, there can be really great ways that that we can use technology to enhance our learning. And at the same time, things can go really far off the edge the other way as well. So it can start to create when you have like social comparison and you start to become a passive consumer of it or not not really understand what's going on or how much time we're spending on those things and how when we are on our phone all the time, yes, we feel connected to our phone, but we're really disconnecting from our life and knowing that things like actually spending time with people and having conversations is such a important part of the human experience. It can be really tricky, especially for kids, because I mean, I've got some nieces and nephews and like my two year old niece can open an iPad and play games. And so I think especially as parents or aunts or uncles or anybody that has some influence or is watching over some, especially younger children, but all children and teens, is to teach them healthy boundaries around it. So helping them to choose and to learn how to use their phone or their iPad or their tablet or whatever it is as a tool and yet not having it run their life because it's, you know, it actually scares me to think about what. I mean, what could possibly be when kids get free reign on essentially they have like all the information at their fingertips, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think asking questions or even like, like, um, I was talking to my niece the other day and she was, uh, she's a little bit older. She was scrolling on Facebook and I said to her after, how do you feel right now? And she said, you know, I kind of feel, uh, I said, Oh, interesting. What were you just doing? And she's like, oh, I was on Facebook. I was looking at what everybody was doing. And I said, Oh, and so it didn't really make you feel that good. And she's like, no, not really. Cause I, you know, I'm home and I really like, wanted to be with my friends that would make me feel sad. And I said, Oh, I said, if you were just home and, and you weren't on that, what would you have been doing? She's like, you know, I would have been, um, she's really into puzzles. I was, I would have been doing my puzzles. And I said, how do they make you feel? She's like, Oh, I love doing them. They make me happy. And I said, Oh, interesting. So if we can sort of choose what you want to do to make you happy, which would you pick? So you start to allow them to make those connections and to really have a discussion around it. Um, and instead of just sort of enforcing rules, but having them be a part of um, creating those boundaries and rules and helping them to connect what their experience is on social media or on their phones or tablets or whatever and, and how it makes them feel, I think that can, can really have a positive impact on them, especially um, when you look at how important of a window of opportunity childhood and teen years are in terms of setting patterns for adulthood. Mm. There's so many parallels to what you just shared there in the way that I believe we teach children about nutrition because I feel Mm. as though so often we want to say, eat your vegetables and like reinforce all of these like healthy things versus allowing them to connect with their little bodies and be able to see how foods make them feel and be able to make those choices and not have it that certain foods are off limits, like just allow them to be in the driver's seat in relation to that so that they can Mm -hmm. connect with how they feel. Because I feel as though when we just set these rules, like we're not allowing them to make their own decisions. And then I feel like it creates these patterns down the line where they don't really understand why they're making one decision or the other. They almost just rebel naturally because we've told them not to do something, right? 
Exactly. Yeah, I love that you said that. And it's so true because in, in any area, especially of a child's life, when it's just a dictatorship and you tell them what to do, that only lasts for so long. Because uh-huh. what do kids start to do? They start to rebel, right? Yes. No, yes. no, 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 no. They do exactly what you tell them not to. Exactly. But even like you said with food, like if kids eat a lot of, of sugar, their tummy hurts, they'll tell you, right? Exactly. Um, or they'll yeah. feel tired. But it's, it's helping them to create those connections for themselves. Absolutely. And, and allowing them the space and the opportunity to learn those things in a safe environment because we, you know, we really as parents or as anybody that has influence over children, teachers or aunts or uncles or anybody, it is such an opportunity to really shape their minds and to shape how they learn and how they think. And we want them to become even like I could see it in my university students classroom sometimes. Um, one of the things I really tried to teach was was creative thinking and problem solving because I noticed that that was an area of learning opportunity big time because students were coming through and they were used to a teacher telling them, this is your homework, read this chapter, answer these questions. There was no critical thinking. There was no um, starting to get creative and to do problem solving. And I think those are such important life skills. And when we can start at a really early age, starting to help kids help themselves to understand and to learn that, it can be such an important piece of healthy child development. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the, I kind of want to shift gears and talk a little bit about we're in the fall season. We're transitioning into winter. I think it's pretty common that mm-hmm. we see a shift in happiness, right? Mm-hmm. We've had this eight mm-hmm. to 10 weeks here in <laughs> Ontario, yep. Canada, where it has been lovely and we've been in vacation mode and there's been sunshine and we've been able to just be in like have have these happy months but what i often see around me and i'm sure you see this too is that as things get colder and as we transition into the winter months it can sometimes be more difficult to feel the same sort of happiness as what we were feeling when the sun was out all the time so what are some things that people can do as we transition into those colder months to create more happiness would it be the same sort of like gratitude, social connection, or is there extra things that we can do when we see these changing of seasons? Yes. You know, I was actually just thinking about this the other day when I was getting on my sweaters for fall and I was thinking, uh oh, sweaters means winter is coming. And so yes, absolutely. All those things that I talked about are great year round and they're kind of extra boosty things that we can do in the fall and especially going into winter to really have an effect because you hear about things like seasonal affective disorder. That's a real thing where when we don't get the sunlight and the vitamin D that we're used to, it can really affect our mood and our thinking and our functioning and everything. So making sure that we get exposed to as much daylight as we can, and especially when the days get shorter and it gets dark really early, it really making sure that if we're near windows that they're open, that we're getting outside, that we're walking. And even though it's winter, I think sometimes we want to go inside and we want to hibernate when the weather gets cold. And I remember I was I was skiing in Mount Tremblant a couple year a year ago or something, and my ski instructor, a like guide person, we were doing this like uh, cross country ski thing. He said, you know, there's no bad weather, there's only bad clothing choices. <laughs> and I thought about that, and I'm like, you know what? He's right because when you can dress for the weather, then you can go outside and you can enjoy the weather no matter what. I think especially when you're in climates that aren't so warm all the time, it can be really easy to just say, oh, it's cold, and and, sh- and not want to go outside anymore. The other thing I thought, I was listening to a podcast with Josh Waitskin. He was on Tim Ferriss's podcast and he was talking about parenting and his, his child. And he said, you know, I don't teach my child that there's such thing as good weather and bad weather. There's just different types of weather. And every day we look outside and we dress accordingly. And I really liked that because if you think about it, if you look outside and it's raining and you say to yourself, oh, it's 
bad weather today or ugh, it's raining out, you're automatically setting yourself up for that kind of day. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, even small things like that, like recognizing that, okay, all weather is different. Um, just that little shift in, in that and just making sure that you dress for it, I think is, is big. Also, what's really interesting is, um, I hear a lot of Canadians say, you know, I'm just not as happy in the wintertime. And if you look to the data, it's true. People that live in cold, like when they have extreme climates, so they have a warm summer and a cold winter or vice versa. Um, in the cold climates, they tend to be less happy. But what's really interesting is that in the summer, they tend to be happier than people that live in sort of a temperate, consistent climate year round. Say someone that lives in California, for example. Mm-hmm. So even though um, we have these extremes, we net the people that live in extremes, sort of the, having the different um, temperatures throughout the year, are overall happier because they appreciate the good weather even more. When someone lives in a climate that's good all of the time, they don't tend to appreciate it nearly as much. So the people that live in that net out to a happier happiness score than people that do. So I think especially if you're going into winter and you live somewhere, keep that in mind because I thought that was pretty cool when I read that. That is interesting. That is very, very interesting. Yeah, Yeah, it's almost like there's this thing that happens late spring, early summer where you just even make eye contact with more strangers and people just have this glow about them. And I've always found it so interesting Mm -hmm. here in Ontario. So it's interesting that the research supports that um, as well, Jillian. Yeah. 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 And I think the other piece too is that um, in the winter, for example, things change. So it's not as easy to go outside and say, go for a hike, but that doesn't mean that we can't. Learning to embrace whatever climate you're in can be a really empowering and exciting activity. You know, even a couple of years ago, I took up snowshoeing. I'd never done that before. And it really made me feel Canadian. And I loved it. It <laughs> gave like a sense of like pride and connection. So oh, that's awesome. Going out and trying things. First of all, trying new things is great for not only um, your happiness, but also for your cognitive function. And as we age to do different things to keep our brain on its toes can be really good. So doing that kind of stuff, not only in terms of happiness, but also in terms of even like our, our brain function can be a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I'm kind of curious, what are you guys up to within your happiness Institute? Are there certain research projects that are on the horizon? Other mm-hmm. questions that you're kind of wanting some answers to before you, uh, well, like during your lifetime, Jillian? Yeah. So for me, what's really interesting to me right now is, you know, like I said earlier, like I'm really interested in how do we live the best life ever? So um, one of the studies that we're looking at right now is looking at um, patterns and commonalities among people that are really happy. What do they do? What do they think? What do they practice? Because I think there's a lot to be said instead of just sort of the disease management approach to health, where you look at what's wrong and how do we fix it? Health promotion looks at what's right and how can we make it better? Those people that are doing things really, really well, what are they doing and what can we learn from them? So I think there's a lot of value in that. And what's interesting is even if you look, um, the first ever scientific research paper on happiness was published in 1980. So not even that long ago, if you think about it. Yeah. And so I think there's so much innovation and opportunity for learning from that. And then also, I think really learning how do we leverage. So a lot of my, um, my work looks at like online videos and apps and things like that. And how can we use those as tools? to help enhance our happiness. Um, because I mean, you can fight it and you can say that, you know, we should be off our screens and we shouldn't be on our phones or our computers. But the fact of the matter is that's kind of the life that we're living. And so acknowledging that and figuring out, okay, well, if that's what the case is, how can we actually take this and make it into an asset, make it into something that is actually going to help us instead of hinder us. 
So can it help with our learning? Can it help with our creativity? Can it help with our connection? What are those different things? And how can that impact our happiness? Those are some of the questions that we're working with right now. Very interesting. Do you have a large team that that works with you, Jillian? Or uh, what does that look like? Well, it's interesting. So a lot of research is grant based. Mm -hmm. So it kind of ebbs and flows. So at any different time, um, we'll have and what's also amazing is that before even like 20 years ago with research, you know, you had people in a lab at a university. But now with um, this is a great example of how technology can be great is that you can have a team from anywhere in the world. So I can have a data analyst in Switzerland, and I can have a program evaluator in Australia. And so having these very diverse teams from all over the world, I think is such an asset because it brings such different experiences and lenses to to doing research. And I think that only really enhances the whole overall, um, the overall experience of it. And I think that, you know, we were talking before we got on about, I, I do a lot of media um, and I talk about happiness on the media. And one of the reasons I do that is because in this day and age, a lot of the research that is done is amazing, but it doesn't get out. One of the things I'm most passionate about is figuring out how do we take all of this amazing research that we know and share it with people in a way that it can actually help them, that it can help to help them live happier, healthier lives. And so a big piece of my work too is the knowledge translation piece, right? Taking that information um, and someone that can actually read and understand the data and then find accessible ways to make that fun and exciting and to teach that and share that with people so they can actually take it and use it in their life in a practical, realistic way to impact their happiness. Mm, very cool. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you're doing quite a bit of that with all the different shows and stuff that you uh, are doing in Toronto, eh? Yeah, you know, I, I really, it's so fun. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I loved uh, teaching at a university. It was, it's so fun. And yet the biggest class I ever taught there was a first year class and it had 500 students. And that's actually a very big super class at a university. Um, and I realized that I can expand my scale even more than that. And when I'm on a show, for example, my classroom is a lot bigger. It, my classroom is somebody's living room or I'm with them on their, the train or the bus or the car or whatever it is, but it's, it's all just different classrooms for the same amount of learning. And I feel like any way that we can share information in a credible, accessible way, because that's the other thing is, especially in today's day and age, it can be very overwhelming and difficult to navigate what's good information, what's bad information, what's true, what study is good, what study is bad, what is this? So being able to cut through all of that and really boil it down to what actually matters in a way that we can all learn and understand and apply to our life, to me, that is really important. It's something I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I absolutely love the work that mm-hmm. you're doing and uh, love seeing whenever you're on uh, one of those shows, your segments are Thanks. always so interesting. <laughs> and you. Uh, yeah, it's uh, been great chatting with you, Jillian. Now, if somebody wants to find out more about you or connect with you, what would be the best way for them to go about doing that? Yeah, so um, my actually, I should have a new website up very shortly, but there's one now and there'll be one then. It's all the same site. So it's my name, JillianMandage.com, and it's Jillian with a G. So it's G-I-L-L-I-A-N-M-A-N-D-I-C-H.com. And from there, all my socials are there. My contact page is there. If you've got questions or you want to reach out or anything like that, that's sort of the good hub to go. And then you can kind of go from there. I've got clips linked up to a bunch of my segments and articles and stuff like that. If that interests you, um, all of that information is there. Mm -hmm. Are you currently looking for participants for any of your studies? 
Uh, let me. I am in about a month. So what okay. we're beginning of September, on October first, we're starting our next one. So um, that'll be up on my website, and I will post that on my social channels. But yes, coming up October first, we have a big study launching. So yeah, I would okay. love um, for people to to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, yeah. And would they have and to be able to come to Toronto or would somebody that's no. maybe listening from somewhere else, yeah, they'd be able to actually take part? This is a really cool, it's, it's completely online. Awesome. All videos, all online. So geography is a non-issue. And, and again, that's another way where we can really leverage technology in a good way. So yeah, it, it can be anywhere in the world. As long as you can speak English and you're over the age of 18, then you are more than welcome. Oh, that's awesome. Well, and we you know, I think... If you're, if you're listening right now and you've never actually participated in a research study, um, I'm biased because I'm always looking for participants, but I really truly believe that getting involved in, in some sort of research at some time in your life is a really cool learning opportunity. And it's neat to be able to see that side of, of knowledge and to be a part of that. So if you're listening and you never have, whether it's my study or someone else's study, if that opportunity ever comes in front of you or presents itself, I would really encourage you to consider um consider participating in a study at some point because that's how we kind of move the needle forward and we collectively can do that together and I find it it can be really fun have you ever been to study I haven't and I like as you're talking I'm like oh my god I'm gonna sign up I mean my baby okay (laughs) well I would uh yeah I would love to I mean my baby's gonna come sometime within like next six to eight weeks but I totally still think it would be yeah, something fun to participate in. So the other place you can check out is at Western. There's a place called the Exercise and Pregnancy Lab. Oh, wow. And they, cool. They always have amazing research going on, a lot of nutrition and physical activity research. Um, so if you just Google um, Exercise and Pregnancy Lab at Western, um, they, and I'm sure other universities as well, but I just know Western from being there, they have a ton of amazing programs for new moms. Ooh. And for families. And yeah, so check That's that awesome. out because I've actually been involved in some research with them and it's it's really amazing, impressive stuff. So whatever your interests are, whatever your stage of life, getting on the internet and doing a little Google search of what's around you, it, it can um it can be really cool. There's a lot of interesting stuff. But yeah, definitely check that out. That's awesome. Yeah. I actually take my son to ones at the University of Waterloo. It's like infant mm. and something studies and he has like he he has a blast every time that he goes and they give him a diploma every time he goes as well so it's oh. like they get to graduate from like a BA to a PhD every time that they come and do a study and uh yeah it's been really fascinating cool. to watch that so uh, I would definitely love to participate in one myself too yeah that's so cool that's amazing yeah. Well, we'll just wrap things up uh, here, Jillian. And that is with the last question of our podcast. And that is, how would you like to be remembered? Ooh. Do you know I've never been asked this question before? That's exciting. Mm. Yeah. That's a great question. You know, I this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, you know, this idea of like that we're all going to die and we'll all be gone. And so what's left? And, you know, that idea of legacy or what do we leave behind? And I really, more than that, like we all have one shot at life, you know, we, and like, I'm so passionate about figuring out how do we live the best life ever. And so what that means for me is really showing up every day, giving it my all, trying my best. Trying doesn't mean forcing and pushing all the time. Trying can mean being very gentle and slow. Trying just means being present in my life and being the best person I can, being the best version of myself. And we all continue to learn and evolve and we all make mistakes. But what really I think at the end of the day matters is is how we connect with other people and how we treat other people. And 
the example that we can lead for the next generation, right? Because like Mm -hmm. I said earlier, children are our future. And so I think that even in terms of behavior change, when you look at how do you get somebody to change a behavior, you can sit there and you can tell them, exercise, eat fruits and vegetables, don't eat chips, whatever it is. The effect long-term of that isn't very good. It's when people actually see you change your behavior, it inspires them. You know, like the Buddha says, like, be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm -hmm. Modeling the behaviors that you want to see for other people is the best way to impact change. I mean, we've all met those people that um, you haven't seen them for a while and you see them and they've got like pep in their step and they're smiling and their skin is radiant and their eyes are white. And you say, hey, what are you doing? And that naturally intrigues you. And so I think that modeling the best version of ourselves and living the healthiest, happiest life that we have possible is the most important thing because at the end of the day, that's what matters. You know, I really think that living a life where we are in stewardship and leadership and able to to help other people and to connect and to inspire and to relate um, and, and to love and to be fully present in every single day that we have because we don't know how many days we're going to have. So the ones that we have every day, I know this is cliche and it's true though, is such a gift. And so we can look at life that way and we can live our life to the fullest every single day, being present, trying our best. To me, that's, that's how I want to be remembered that I did that. Mm, I love it. Well, thank you for taking the time to share that beautiful response and all of the insights from today's conversation. And I just want to thank you for the way that you show up in this world. I think you're doing incredible work and I commend you for that, Jillian. Thank you so much, Angela. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and the work that you're doing and the information you're sharing on this podcast, you know, like I was talking about showing up and mattering and mattering and leaving is battering a word (laughs) and leading by example is so inspirational as well. So thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for having me on today. You're very welcome. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you too. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. That's a wrap, my friends. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Now, the biggest piece of creating a healthier, happier life is putting this into action. So after you listen to this episode, I challenge you to reach out to me and let me know what it is you're going to put into practice on a daily or regular basis to create a happier life. You are in the driver's seat in terms of creating your own happiness, just like what the research said and just what like Jillian said. So I challenge you, how are you going to create a happier life for yourself? Reach out to me and let me know. Tag me on Instagram and let me know what it is that you're doing to create more happiness. And I will catch you guys next week. Thanks again for joining me. Guys, I'm on a really big mission here and I want to transform 1 million lives, but I need your help. I can't do it alone. I want you to take this episode, share it with just one person. Maybe it's a friend or a family member or maybe a coworker, just one person who could really benefit from the information in this week's episode or perhaps a previous episode. That is how we create impact. That is how we get this movement going. That's how we take people from feeling tired and just not having a fulfilled life and we put them into fulfilling their full potential. So I challenge you guys to share this with just one person. It would mean the world to me. And as always, head on over to iTunes, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. They come out every single Thursday. That is my commitment to all of you guys so that you guys can continually grow, expand, and fulfill your full potential. Have a great week. We'll catch you next time. Lots of love. Ange.